Okay. Thank you for joining us today on A Virtual View. Today, I'm joined by my colleague at IRHA, uh, Amna Anwar. Amna, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And it's so good to be back on Virtual View with some new information that I have. So just to give a little bit of background for the people who don't know me, Amna Anwar, I'm a senior director at Indiana Rural Health Association. I wear multiple hats within the association, running multiple programs, serving as a principal investigator for Upper Midwest Telehealth Resource Center. And most recently, I took on the responsibility of being the program director for the Indiana Rural Opioid Consortium Medication Assisted Treatment Program, which is funded through our core program through HRSA. And the aim basically is focused on medication assisted treatment for opioid use disorder as well as the alcohol use disorder. Great. And you have experience in the substance use disorder space. I know this because I worked with you before on a program that dealt with that. Yes. So this is a continuation, actually, for the work that we have done previously in rural Indiana. And we were fortunate enough to receive this funding because we had built up quite a bit of uh, resources and information and infrastructure when it comes to prevention, treatment, and recovery from, from substance use disorder, although the main focus has always been on opioid use disorder. Previously, we were funded, we were one of the few grantees in the pilot program that was the Rural Health Opioid Program, which was prior to the R-Core implementation program. Then we were able to get the R-Core planning and then R-Core implementation funding, with the help of which our focus was mainly on prevention, building the infrastructure, removing stigma, as well as increasing the access to medication-assisted treatment for our patients in rural areas. All really important goals. So how does this new program, how does it differ from the original program? It is similar and somewhat different at the same time. So when we started with our pilot program, it was mostly focused on opioids. So opioid use disorder and most of the focus was towards prevention. So prevention of people from getting the diagnosis of opioid use disorder by identifying them in early stages with various different screening tools that we were using with our clinical partners and then getting them referred to treatment. When we ventured into the planning and implementation phase, we added on more of the target area, the service area that we were providing, and started initially from five rural counties and eventually went up to 14 rural counties in Indiana. Again, the focus was mostly on prevention and referral to treatment. However, for both of our programs, since we started back in 2017, the main focus or the main barrier that we came across was the stigma. So we had to kind of like shift our focus from actual clinical piece of the program towards community outreach and education and removing the stigma from not only the disease, but also the treatment. So the disease, we had to explain it to not only the community, but also the providers like this is a chronic disorder. People will relapse and there is medication out there that can help the people. And then providing that outreach that the medication that is available is not a replacement of the drugs that the people are taking. It's not a replacement of heroin or any other drug that they're taking. That became the focus of our initial two programs along with the other things. 
But with this one, the main focus is actually increasing that medication-assisted access by hiring MAT providers, by creating a peer workforce to support those providers, as well as help navigation. And then the other focus over here is to provide subject matter expertise through Project ECHO, where we will establish a new ECHO project for the peer recovery specialist specifically. So the previous one, we had partnered with ECHO, but it was mostly sort of like a supportive collaboration. But this time around, they're going to be more involved in our partners and in our regions, specifically delivering services in that area. And I do like that you mentioned that there is a stigma, not just around the disease, but around the treatment as well. And I think that's something that does make substance use disorder so unique because with most diseases, conditions, you don't see stigma associated not just around the condition itself, but also around the treatment that's required for it. That has been our main barrier, I would say, when we were trying to reach out to providers even, because it is still a little bit going above and beyond of what their uh, actual practices are, especially when we are talking about the primary care providers. And to your point, yes, like just making it known to the people that this is a chronic disease was a huge thing, but then giving them options for treatment and for them to think, oh my God, you're just replacing one drug with another, was a whole new educational approach that we had to do with that. With other chronic diseases like asthma, the diabetes, hypertension, the relapse is still there. Actually, the relapse rate for asthma is greater than that for substance use disorder. So when we say that we a person was doing such a wonderful job in recovery, but then they relapsed and they started using again, we have to understand that this is the nature of the disease. So it's not the drug that's causing them to lead relapse. The drug or the buprenorphine, which is helping them during their recovery, is there just like any diabetic who is taking his medications but decides to binge on a chocolate cake one night and ends up in the emergency the other night. We won't penalize them. It's kind of like the same thing, the same approach that we need to have for these patients. Yeah, and that all ties back to stigma and the sort of moral judgment of substance use disorders that I feel like always gets tied back to this sort of work. That is true. And that also goes back to just the history of how we have treated patients who suffer from substance use disorder. We have penalized them. We have criminalized them, indicating that this is a moral weakness and not necessarily a disease. Like any other chronic disease, this is 40 to 60 percent genetic. And then obviously external factors also play a role. And yes, that is a choice of the patient to maybe take that first step towards using a drug or, or opioid, but the subsequent effect that the drug has that keeps them coming back might not be the patient's choice because it is, like I said, it might be genetic and then some exogenous factors as well. So just changing that mindset and that thought process has our main focus in our initial years. But I'm so glad like we are at that point when our last grant, grant ended, we were at that point where people are willing to listen, they are willing to understand and at least have that dialogue. Even if they don't completely agree with what we are trying to tell them, they are willing to have that dialogue, which is in my mind is a big win. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree. You can't have conversations that are productive if people aren't even willing to listen. True. 
So let's talk a little bit more about the specific populations that you're targeting with this program. Where are you operating? So with this program, like I said, it is somewhat similar to what we did last time, but our focus this time around with our previous programs, we were kind of like all over the state. And sometimes that becomes a problem when you're trying to actually deliver services. And we need to obviously have a partner which has the medication-assisted treatment provider in, in those areas. Looking at the needs as well as the availability of the partners, we actually ended up focusing on the South Central region in Indiana. The counties that we have right now, that the rural population that we will be serving, includes Orange, Crawford, Perry, Spencer, and Harrison counties. So all of these are almost contiguous counties, and they would be served through LifeSpring Health System, which is a partner in this program with us. The main aim is to create medication-assisted treatment or medication for opioid use disorder, as the new terminology is used. We still kind of like refer back to MAT because that's how the grant is written and the grant is funded. But the main aim is to create a team which consists of an MAT or the MOUD provider, the prescriber, the health navigator, and the peer recovery specialist. So these three people will make themselves available at different times of the week in five different locations, like all of these counties in a brick and mortar locations to provide that MAT access. So in addition to that, we also have the telehealth component associated with that. So that when they, when they are not actually on the location, and if, if that location ends up having a patient who needs their services, then they can get connected with this team via telehealth. We're going to get into the telehealth in a minute here, I promise. But <laughs> uh, something I, I do want to touch on. So those counties, those are extremely rural counties. I've been there before. So what challenges are you facing when you're engaging with these very rural populations? I think the biggest one that I already mentioned is stigma. Every time you go into a new community, you and I work in rural Indiana, so we know that if you've seen one rural county, you've seen one rural county. It is not the same. Like You cannot access each area with the same approach or the same attitudes. Yes, some things work, but then you have to reach out to the key stakeholders in each of these communities and, and kind of like get them on board with your program and move forward with that. The one thing that we have been fortunate enough with this program is that our partner already has those existing relationships because they actually have locations where they're providing the primary care services already. So that kind of relationship exists. But still, when it comes to specific barriers that rural populations face, it's transportation is number one to get the, to these locations. The other one is also just the stigma of being seen by a substance use disorder provider is another thing. The other ones that that we have run into is just the inability of the patients to get connected to treatment immediately because most of these patients end up in emergency departments. It is at that time, if the connection is not made with that peer recovery specialist or peer recovery worker who can then guide them towards the treatment, it is at that time, if that's not done, then we end up losing those patients and then they might be returning back to our emergency departments or, un or they might unfortunately become the next statistics when it comes to the deaths due to the opioid use disorder. Or that's when you get those patients ending up in the correctional facilities as well. Yes. Definitely. So with this program, what we are trying to do is we are trying to alleviate all of these barriers. Extremely rural counties, 
with no other MIT providers. If you know that a provider is going to be there at a specific time, and even if they're not there, they can get connected through telehealth. That kind of like alleviates that lack of access and then transportation issues can also be alleviated through telehealth. Stigma is something that we would be launching an anti-stigma campaign in our counties in tandem actually with develop, delivering these services. Uh, so we are trying to have a multi-pronged approach in order to alleviate these barriers that the rural population faces. But as you and I and all the people who have worked in the underprivileged or rural areas, there are barriers that come up while you're trying to implement your program. So we are keeping our eyes open and try to be flexible. I think one of the things that we might run into initially is just that workforce issues. There is some staff that needs to be hired for that team. We have posted those positions, but still like we are looking for those. The timeline for those is like the first quarter. So by December, we should have everybody in place in order to start delivering those services. So post pandemic, I think that's the biggest issue in healthcare. That's the which was already an issue in substance use disorder and behavioral health arena. That's just the facts that are out there. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, and we see that replicating itself across the, the healthcare landscape. And like most things, most challenges that we face, it's always worse in those rural areas. Mm -hmm. So that's where telehealth comes into play, <laughs> where I get to talk about my thing. So <laughs> tell me a little bit more about how you're uh, instituting telehealth and utilizing that in your program. Like I mentioned before, the idea is to have that team when they are not present in any of those five locations during the time available via telehealth in their original location, which would be in Jennings County and, and be there while they are providing those services via telehealth. So if a patient ends up at one of our locations, for example, in Orange County, and that team is not there at that time, but that patient requires the services of the MAT provider, then at that location, we'll set up an area where they can then get connected via HIPAA compliance software with our team that will be located in their original location and then provide get those services through, through that. We also tend to provide, aim to provide the comprehensive behavioral health services when it comes to complementing the medication-assisted treatment that the patients would receive. And we are setting up some procedures and protocols in order to provide that via telehealth as well if the need arises. Great. Yeah, I know uh, since COVID and honestly before that, we've seen a lot of success in the behavioral health and substance use disorder treatment realms with using telehealth, because that's something where you can get a lot of that treatment done without needing to be physically in the same location as a patient or a provider. That is true. And I think for telehealth, the best use case is behavioral health, because that is where you see the most success. That is where you see the most usage as well. And uh, since this was one of the first few fields that adopted telehealth, it has really expanded out during the COVID time. One thing that I would like to mention, since I did mention that I've been in this area and working in rural and substance use disorder since before COVID, prior to COVID, the substance use disorder or the MAT providers were very much hesitant to provide these services via telehealth, especially like in Indiana, I know, and I've been with UMCRC in different capacity for a long time. So initially back in 2015, I was with UMCRC, 
I think it was during that time or a year later that Indiana actually allowed the prescription of buprenorphine via telehealth. It has been there for a very long time. It was just not utilized at that time because like there were some nuances associated with it. The providers were more hesitant. They were being more careful. At the same time, they wanted to do the physical or the actual patient visit before they started the treatment in person. And then obviously, the urine drug analysis is another thing which needs to be in person for these patients when, when you're prescribing them buprenorphine or any other drug. So for that purpose, but when COVID hit, I think everybody kind of like had to adapt to deliver mm-hmm. services via telehealth. And that's, it's at that time that people, when they had to do something, they adopted it and eventually they saw the benefit when it comes to increasing the access to care to people who were not otherwise able to get this evidence-based treatment when it came to the substance use disorder. So we saw a huge increase, and that kind of also shows when DEA has proposed to implement those additional, in their proposed rule, restrictions when it came to prescribing buprenorphine or other narcotic substances via telehealth, they received almost around, I think, 40,000 comments, and they had to extend the deadline. They announced this week that it's been extended again through the end of the year because they want to hold a second round of listening sessions. Because I don't know if you heard the first round, there was so much discussion coming from so many different quarters Mm -hmm. that it was just too much for them to effectively synthesize in the time frame that they had. So I expect we're going to continue to see discussion around that and maybe see that can kick down the road a little bit more. Just because there has been such strong advocacy for the usage of of telehealth to do behavioral health as well as substance use disorder. And a lot of that effective treatment does involve those controlled substances. This also shows that for the first time, it's encouraging the DEA is actually working with SAMHSA. So before that, we tried to paint DEA as the very sympathetic or not very empathetic (laughs) uh, entity. But we have to understand that it's not their job to think about the clinical aspects of the treatment. Their job is to control the spread of the medication or the medication to be used for other purposes other than actual treatment. So when Mm -hmm. they're looking at building policies and strategies, they're looking from that perspective. Now that we we are having this dialogue and a lot of providers have actually utilized telehealth to provide substance use disorder treatment, the providers know it works. Mm -hmm. SAMHSA knows that there is, now we have evidence proving some research and studies that have come about that show that telehealth actually is beneficial So now there is more robust discussion. And like I said, it's good that they have actually involved an agency which has worked. Their entire work is based on behavioral health and substance use disorder and the clinical implications. And they kind of like controlled the MAT waiver and everything for a while. So like you said, I think it might even result in new rule, but it might take some time for all the people to get there. Yeah, I'm just really glad that that discussion is finally happening because the folks I've talked to who do work in this space, that sort of change is long overdue. And this has sort of been a pain point for telehealth providers for a while now. 
True. And one of the things I think that people were hesitant about initially was just about like when you're talking to the patient, whether you would be able to observe them. Because when you're talking to the patient who has substance use disorder, there are certain cues that providers take from their general mannerism, their appearance, mm -hmm. and all of that. And now we have such good technology that can be utilized for various different purposes that some of those concerns can also be alleviated in terms of like the camera usage, digital literacy at the patient's end is much improved as it was in the years prior because now everybody knows how to use screens and communicate to their providers using these different technologies, which was not the case previously. So I think it's just that COVID, one of the good things that came out of COVID was that people became and providers became comfortable in utilizing mm -hmm. telehealth and prescribing via telehealth when it came to those controlled substances. Exactly. And I will say, even as somebody who is a big advocate for telehealth, I think it's great. I use it myself whenever it's available. I think it's best used when it's sort of uh, supplementary to having those options to have in-person care. But as a tool for access, in a lot of these cases, like you said, you're working in these really rural communities. And if a patient isn't able to come in on a day when, when care is available, having that telehealth resource for them there is invaluable because just coming in in the first place with the stigma we talked about and, and everything associated is such a difficult step. So if they take that step and the care isn't available, maybe they'll never take it ever again. So having that telehealth there and having that access, I think is so important. Couldn't agree with you more on that. Just to like sum it up is that having some access to evidence-based care is better than having no access. So yes, like you said, usually it's a good practice to use it as a complementary resource of access to treatment. And then there should always be that availability of an in-person care. And for Indiana, we are rural, but not as rural as some of the other states where it's just not possible to have that in-person care. For us, I think that complementary piece can work very well. But again, like having access to evidence-based care, however you can get it, is better than having no access at all. So let's talk a little bit about what the future of the NROC MAT program looks like. So where are you guys going to go in the near and far future? So the idea is to actually have this program up and running in the counties that we have. It's a three-year grant-funded program. And with any grant-funded program, the overall mission is to have it sustainable by the end of the program so that it is self-sustaining and the providers are, whoever the partners are, able to continue providing those services post the grant funding. At the same time, the idea is to expand this access to other areas in rural Indiana. So if we are able to gather more funding to pilot or to implement these programs in other areas, we would definitely try to move that way. Additionally, what I have always tried to do previously with all of the programs that I have is to break down silos because we feel like nothing is happening when it comes to the access or just the resources in rural Indiana, but there is usually some agency or somebody or community-based organization that is already working in those communities, just making everyone aware of what else is happening out there in their communities and building that infrastructure from ground up so that even when IRHA leaves, having a sustainable program at their clinical partner size, the communities are connected and the communities and other organizations, they know how to move forward. They have a blueprint of how to move forward in continuing to implement this program. 
So that's what we aim to do. Sometimes we succeed, sometimes there's still areas for improvement that we can work on. But the idea is to have the MAT access available to patients wherever and whenever they need it. That's amazing. And the UMTRC will be excited to support you however we can. <laughs> Thank you. I, I know I can always count on that. Of course, of course. Amna, thanks so much for hopping on and chatting with me about something I really care about. I always like getting to talk to you about the work that you do. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Thank you for listening to A Virtual View. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Do you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss? If so, contact us at info at umtrc.org or through the form found in the show notes. Also, we'd like to give a special thanks to our editor, Tristan Yoder. Finally, a special thanks to the Health Resources and Service Administration, also known as HRSA. Our podcast series, A Virtual View, is sponsored in part by HRSA's Telehealth Resource Center program, which is under HRSA's Office of the Administrator and the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth. The content and conclusions of this podcast are those of the UMTRC and should not be construed as the official policy of, or the position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day.